discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Commodity Watch Radio, hosted in association with Mindsight.com. I'm Dominic Frisby and today I'm talking to Andrew Bell, who is the chairman of Regency Mines, who are a base metal exploration company. They trade on the AIM market under the ticker symbol RGM. Their price is currently 0.6 of a P. They reached a high of 4.25 P last year and a low of 0.4 P. They have a market cap of about £1.5 million and about 245 million shares outstanding. Keener listeners will remember Andrew was interviewed on the show um, back in uh, early 2007, at which point uh, Nickel, which is one of the um, metals that Regency are exploring for, was on a bit of a tear. So, uh, and, and, and the stock did very well after the interview. And Andrew, welcome back to the show. It's good to have you back. And thanks Thank for coming you. back on. Um, why don't you give us a quick uh, overview of Regency, uh, what you do, and then we'll start looking at, uh, at the future. Well, the company is about five years old. And as you say, we're in base metals exploration. Uh, principally, uh, from the beginning, it has been nickel. And uh, that's laterite nickel and sulfide nickel. Uh, but also we have been exploring for copper. We've even got some gold interests. Uh, we, uh, in addition, have some investments in other companies, uh, the, the major one of which is our 32% shareholding in AIM-listed Red Rock Resources. And uh, that was assets that we got into Regency post-listing and then spun out into Red Rock for reasons that I can go into. Uh, we also have one or two other holdings. So we've always seen ourselves, because we've, we've promoted some uh, third-party listings on AIM as well in the good days, uh, we've seen ourselves as being something of a mining finance house or transaction-oriented company as well as a simple explorer because I don't think it's enough to be merely an explorer uh, because the conditions aren't always propitious for that and we want to be always making things happen, adding value or cash flow and um, since I have a mining analytical background but also an investment banking background uh, we have, myself and other people, that mix of skill sets. What uh, kind of cash flow do you have at the moment? You mentioned the word cash flow there. Well, our cash flow historically when we've had it has come from transactions uh, at the moment um, we don't have uh, anything in the last few months that would come out of that category we may have something in the near future that would generate cash flow but it would be cash flow generated by transactions rather than by suddenly producing so by that you mean there are some deals, potential deals on the yes. table. You, can you tell us about them or are you are you under Well, um, I think that, for example, when we invested in Red Rock originally, we had 101.25 million shares when we listed it. The capital has increased quite a lot uh, and uh, there's now 405 million shares in issue. Our shareholding has gone up to between 130 and 140 million shares and we regard part of that as our trading portfolio. Uh, although the bulk of it we regard as a long-term holding. Um, and we think that Red Rock is going to be very interesting. 
uh, we've just done a transaction for Red Rock that's uh, uh, being announced. Well, we really said what we were doing back in October, so it's no secret. And anyone who looks at the numbers and Red Rock announcements should be able to work it all out. Uh, but uh, we, the thing will actually go live at the beginning of next week with some announcements. And uh, uh, that transaction, we think, will increase the value of Red Rock by between 10 and 50 times. And uh, it will provide a lot of liquidity and um, uh, continuing liquidity. And uh, we expect that we shall use the opportunity of that to realize profits on part of our uh, Regency holding, because that's you know, the business we're in. We also have, in relation to some other unlisted subsidiaries, potential deals in the offing. For example, one of them, we got an unsolicited uh, bid, a cash bid for one of our assets, which in this market is something we certainly have to take very seriously, even if we think it undervalues the asset, because uh, cash at the moment is about 10 times more valuable than any asset you can think of. <laughs> Why don't you tell us quickly about uh, Red Rock, what, what their main uh, area of interest is? Well, this is the reason we span it out, um, is, is that it's in iron ore and manganese and has been really from the beginning, uh, whereas we were primarily in nickel but also looking at copper and gold uh, and transactions. And the thing is, you know, copper, uh, you've got a price of between $4,000 and $8,000 a tonne, Gold, you've got, of course, 600 to, say, $900 an ounce. Um, nickel, you've got something between $9,000 and $52,000 a tonne, depending on what condition the market's in. And cobalt that we get with some of our nickel is anything from sort of 20 to 30 or upwards dollars a pound. On the other hand, iron ore is something between, say, 30 and $150 a tonne. And manganese is something between, you know, 100 and about three or $400 a tonne. So there you're dealing with very low-priced commodities. It's a step up from maybe selling coal or sand and gravel, um, but it's similar to them in that you really have to think about the transport infrastructure. They're big, multi-year, capital-intensive projects where you have to be planning the railway, planning the port, every detail, because you have to keep your costs per tonne as low as possible. And uh, therefore, it lends itself to big companies. I mean, if you find a little small gold deposit, you can scalp it, you know, take a bit of gold out. If necessary, you fly the stuff out. But uh, with iron ore and manganese, you really need to have a big partner with a lot of capital. Three or four years ago, when we uh, brought in these assets, because we saw good prospects for those commodities in steel manufacture, we floated them into a separate company because we expected to do a deal with a Chinese partner, potentially, to help develop that with maybe an offtake agreement and capital participation. And uh, whoever came in wasn't going to be interested in our Regency assets, and so we'd essentially have been valuing them at nothing if we'd had it in there and done a deal. By putting a subsidiary there, we got the opportunity to take a, a profit for Regency shareholders at the same time that the money we needed to raise to develop those assets uh, would not be a burden on Regency shareholders. So it seemed logical. And in fact, the deal we've done now uh, although not with a Chinese partner, has a lot of the same characteristics. It's with a large enterprise with a lot of money behind it and really first-rate management that has the skill set to bring a major infrastructure project, particularly in iron ore, particularly in Australia, or in particularly in manganese, into production. And that's something that, of course, we don't have the capabilities to do.
So effectively, a, a large player is buying into the assets. Uh, yes, we formed a joint venture, and we're selling those joint venture assets into a listed company that we're already a shareholder in in Australia. Uh, so Red Rock will then become a 28%, up to 28% shareholder in a listed company. Which will I be should say we're, we're recording market. this uh, interview after the markets have closed on Friday, so uh, yeah. so and it'll it'll go out over the weekend. So it will. We'll, yes. So anyone who hears has got a chance of uh, of. Uh, just keep your eyes open. Uh, I mean, <coughs> is it literally it's Monday you make the announcement? Yeah, it? but I, I mean, our partner in this is the former management uh, and, and specialists in manganese and iron ore uh, of BHP, BHP Billiton. And um, they have a lot of resources behind them. It's, it's Brian Gilbertson's vehicle, Pallinghurst. And um, uh, one of the people who will be going on to the board of Jupiter is the former managing director of BHP Iron Ore, who also built up Portman Mining and uh, made all the infrastructure investments in the railways and port uh, that are exactly in our area, and we'd have to have some kind of deal with Portman in order to develop those iron ore assets. So we have exactly the right people, and um, this is just what we should be doing. We should be finding the strongest possible management and uh, financial partner in order to develop our assets because our role as a junior explorer is to take a few steps up the value curve, but not to imagine that with one leap we can become BHP. I see. So effectively somebody's buying a share and looking to take you guys into production? Um, yeah, we formed a partnership. Uh, the Pallinghurst put their cash in. We put our assets in. They liked our assets. We are putting that into a listed company, Jupiter, which already has some nearby assets, and we'll then use that as a platform to develop an, an iron, manganese, steel feed, which could include coal, um, it could include uh, things like you know, nickel, cobalt, uh, chromium. It could uh, a steel feed corporation, uh, which can be a, a big player. And Pallinghurst has already invested in Platmin and built that up, and in Gemfields, which aims to do for the coloured stone market what De Beers has done in the diamond market. So they've been extremely energetic and aggressive in the short time they've been in existence. And um, the Pallinghurst's core company actually is in Johannesburg in the autumn. They tried to get into the steel business, steel feed business, which is the biggest mining business by far, which is why BHP, Rio Tinto, Vale and so on are, are in it. They tried to get in that by, by getting uh, Consolidated Minerals as a platform in Australia a year and a half ago, and they were bidding a billion dollars or more for that. So here we are with a partnership, and we're going and investing in a company as a platform that's very tiny. I mean, even a billion dollars is small in that particular mm. business. So we're investing in something very tiny, and the scope in this market, if you have cash and management, for picking up uh, distressed assets or low-priced assets, and building up a critical mass of uh, iron ore or manganese or other steel feed type potential in a particular area, that must be very good. I'd much rather be trying to assemble a new company to become a mini Rio's or mini BHP in this market than trying to do it eight or 12 months ago when everyone's price expectations were high. So I'm really optimistic about that. I think it's a transformative event for uh, Red Rock and will be good for them 
and uh, Red Rock will then become progressively more independent of Regency, but that's good. Uh, and then that, and then we have other, you know, p- uh, potential deals and interests where we are talking to or looking at partners. And again, we want to find strong partners who have something to contribute. Is uh, Jupiter, I take it, it's listed on the ASX? It is, yeah. Okay. Um, let's move it over to Regency now. Uh, Red Rock's resources, as you will have gathered, are based in Australia. Regency's... No, uh, Red Rock is a UK company. It's a UK-listed company. Most of the assets are in Australia. Sorry, when I said it's, um, yeah. when I said it's resources, I meant it's assets, it's properties, yeah. are based in Australia. Uh, why don't you give out the ticker for Red Rock? Uh, RRR. RRR, all the R's. Yeah. So, Regency, your main properties are in Indonesia, am I right in saying uh, Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea. Mm-hmm. And um, they are, tell us uh, about them. Well, our, our biggest nickel property is the Mambare uh, laterally nickel or nickel cobalt property, which is a 20 kilometre by 7 kilometre plateau uh, in Papua New Guinea, and it is a known uh, nickel resource. But it's never been drilled, so the other two known projects in, in Papua New Guinea are more advanced. This one, however, is bigger. We had in the last year a ground-penetrating radar program done, and uh, we've had some drilling in part of the resource in order to define a, uh, a resource on that part of it. Now, the ground-penetrating radar was carried out by the leading company in the field, the man who uh, conducted it has uh, done 63 lateritic nickel deposits in the last 17 years, including all the biggest, the main ones in the world. And his comment to me after doing 52 kilometers on our uh, project in in one area of it, uh, they were all positive. He said, in parts, our profile was deeper than other um, deposits in the area, uh, that even on all but the steepest slopes, we had some laterite there because there's an, a small ash layer on top that had held back erosion. Um, and he said that this was uh, a, a very interesting project, and he compared it with Inca Puma in South America, and said that he would be willing to do more work on it for shares rather than cash, and wanted to be involved, but he said we should take it seriously and really look at the management we had involved in it, because it was too good a project to... Um, uh, to neglect and so we know we have something very large there the problem of course that we have is that at today's nickel prices I mean they were thirty, $28,000, $30,000 a ton at the end of June having come down from a peak which was probably artificial of 52000 back to the sort of 26000 plus level they'd, they'd been at a year or two before but since the end of June last year up to the end of last year they, they fell from about 30,000 to less than 10,000. And, of course, there's been a recovery since then. But that uh, at these low levels, I think there's no lateritic nickel project that, is, that can be profitable. Um, so the high-grade sulphide projects, or for example, Western areas in Western Australia, they may have a break-even level of about $1.50 or something per, per pound, and uh, they can very easily... What does that work out at the time? Um, a few thousand. Okay. It's, uh, what, three or four thousand per ton. And so they still have healthy margin on operating cost. And uh, presumably their capital costs are, you know, amortized. 
but the the thing is that that the last, half the world's nickel is in laterite projects, uh, of which two thirds are in the Pacific Basin, um, and these are near surface; uh, they're flat rather than you know, deep sulphide deposits. But they do have the disadvantage that comparatively low grade. You're not going to get 6 or 7%. You're going to get 1 or 2%. And also because they're in clays, you have to leach them out and uh, the, the acid or reagent has to uh, act on the, um, uh, on the uh, nickel, on the clay, to, um, to get to extract the nickel. And um, it's quite difficult to get it out. So one technology that's been used has been high-pressure acid leach but those plants with high pressures, high acidity, um, high temperature, they are really expensive, more complicated than power stations. They can cost $2 billion to build. You've got um, stuff moving around in there, air coming out of the autoclave at the speed of sound. Um, there's a lot of corrosion. They tend to go over budget. And, of course, you need a huge amount of tons in order to uh, afford to build a $2 billion plant. So we take the view that, you know, we, we thought it before, we think it even more now, that the advances in uh, nickel leaching technology that people have been working on in order to get better yields from heap leaching or uh, atmospheric leaching of, uh, of nickel laterites this is the area where we should concentrate and we should try and find a technology partner. We have something big enough there, simply because the scale is so big, one of the biggest in the world, we believe, uh, that there will always be an investor, there will always be a partner, even if the price of nickel was below the break-even of the project. Somebody will be interested enough because, for example, for China, you know, that's decades and decades' worth of supply. What, what is the break-even of the project, or the projected break-even? Well, I don't know, because we haven't got to that stage yet. We're just at the stage where we are, for the first time uh, ever, um, generating a resource as a result of our ground-penetrating radar work and the drilling. And when we come out with that for the first time, this will feature on all the maps of nickel projects. And it'll feature as well as the biggest, or potentially biggest, uh, and, of course, the nickel price will go up because the industrialization story in Asia remains and the demand for stainless steel as people move into cities and industrialize uh, will continue to be strong and will grow and that not much new nickel is being found. Uh, but in order really to, to benefit from this, uh, we want to uh, find the people and talk to the people. One of them has approached us and um, we're talking to one or two others uh, who have leaching technology and in order to uh, find uh, ways in which we can benefit earlier and to a greater extent. Now, apart from that, we also have sulphide nickel in Western Australia and have since we listed. Um, and although when prices were high, we were really concentrating on Membari, uh, now that prices are lower, we're back looking there because we are assembling a bigger acreage position because some of our neighbours have um, given up uh, or given the tenements back to the people who originally pegged them who, who are friends of ours and uh, we're trying to, at the moment to assemble a position of more than 200 kilometres of strike in the uh, one of the three greenstone belts uh, the one that's been most recently 
delineated as a result of uh, uh, geophysics and mapped, uh, but where there's been almost no exploration. And the other nearby belts, there's a whole lot of discoveries and mines. This has only one, which is just to the north of us, the Lionorilsk mine, um, you know, Emily and Maggie Hayes. But there is a lot of exploration potential. Uh, the previous workers there, the last two or three years, and some of this ground have delineated some good targets, and we've done some geophysics there and, and got some targets of our own. So we have drill targets there. We have a very substantial acreage position, and particularly if we can get some kind of liquidity event from some of the other things we're doing, we're going to take this opportunity when drill crews are coming cheap and you can get people to work uh, on very reasonable terms. We'll take that opportunity to strategically to uh, do a bit of exploration and drilling. Everything's under cover, so without drilling you can't get very far. Geophysics will only take you so far. Uh, but it's still the position that if you drill for sulphide nickel in these greenstone belts in Western Australia and you actually come across a mine, you're lucky, you hit something, um, you've, it's like you know, winning the pools. You hit the jackpot. So um, we have re rebalanced ourselves by we've done some work on the laterite. We will not do anything very aggressive there now because these uh, price levels it doesn't make sense. But we've certainly done enough to please everyone locally that we've uh, done a lot of work and we've advanced the project. Um, we will look for partners for that. But our next step this year, what we really want to do is to um, is to use this price weakness, A, to build up our acreage position, and B, to do some exploration while prices are low. And at, at the same time, we think that over the next few months, we're going to be able to generate uh, cash flow, not by, we hope, um, issuing shares, but by realizing or working some of our investments. In other words, selling them? Yeah. I, w I want to ask you what, what, what's in store over the next six months. You're, you'll be doing further drilling in Western Australia. You'll be developing the project in Papua New Guinea. You'll be looking to make a bit of money and uh, reinvest that money in, in developing your various projects. Are you looking for a joint venture partner? Well, I think the timetable in Papua New Guinea will be uh, we get the sample results back um, and once we've got sample results, we'll try to generate an inferred resource on the part of our project. And from an inferred resource on the part of our project, people can easily extrapolate to the whole project area. And uh, that'll be an important milestone. At the same time, we're waiting for the results of metallurgical work being carried out in Beijing. And at the same time, uh, we are negotiating cooperation um, and investment uh, but I don't think we're going to be spending a lot of money on the ground. There's plenty of digestion to take place after the work that we have done in the last year. Um, in Western Australia, our ability to go out and drill is going to depend on our cash situation, um, as with everybody. Um, but we do think that, that without putting up cash, we can actually um, increase our acreage or our claims on acreage. Uh, and build a strategic position. And if we have a large enough strategic position in a very promising area, with extremely promising, um, it will have 
two uh, consequences. One, of course, for ourselves, in that we have more chance of finding something. But two, and really importantly, we always look at this. We always try and find things that are going to be big, because even in a bad market, somebody's going to be interested. If we have a big enough position, our chances of finding a partner, if we should choose to get a partner to come in and explore with us, are going to be greater, because we've got something of worthwhile size. And one of the things we've learned in negotiating with people, talking to people in the last uh, few years, uh, and it really was brought home to us when we started talking to Pallinghurst about what we might do in uh, iron ore and manganese, is that people really want to have uh, the potential that any project that you are able to develop on an area is going to be large, because you can waste just as much time on a small project as on a big one, mm -hmm. and um, for many companies, that they want to be, they want to be big. Do you see many parallels between now and the late '90s, where so the, the prices of many commodities were so depressed that most that, that many uh, properties and mines became uneconomic? Many mines have become uneconomic now, and then that meant mines closed down, which led to a shortage in various commodities, which led to the next boom. I mean, do you, do you see uh, a, a similar cycle taking place now? Well, the mining market is super cyclical. As I point out to people, if you're talking about retail like a supermarket, the economy turns down, retail sales go down 1 or 2% at worst. So supermarkets say to people, I mean, or, or department stores, oh, bring 10% less dresses next month. But when you're right at the primary commodities at the, uh, at the beginning of the production cycle, the beginning of then, the food chain, I suppose. Yeah, the beginning of the food chain. What happens when iron ore accumulates at Chinese ports is they say, don't send any ships at all for two months. And that's why, if you look in December, uh, Chinese bank lending was up 18.8% year on year. Uh, investment was up. Exports were down 2.3% year on year, and we can all understand that. Imports were down over 21% year on year. And that's because so much of their imports is primary products and there's a lot of destocking. And that's why the Baltic Dry Cargo Index dropped about 80% in two months at the end of last year. And that's why the Chinese are at the moment negotiating with iron ore producers to try and fix the prices for the next year because you are at the bottom of the destocking cycle. Um, and as soon as that very sharp cycle, typical of the, of the commodity market, uh, is over, you're going to get... Um, uh, Chinese demand for, particularly from Australia, uh, for commodities like iron ore, manganese, but, but other ones as well, uh, suddenly picking up again. And then the impact of continuing Chinese growth will start to be felt. And um, you know, markets are discounting mechanisms, they're always looking ahead. You'll get very sharp price rises quite suddenly. Two last questions, Andrew. The market cap of Red Rock? The market cap of Red Rock is 2.4 million pounds. And finally, the websites of Regency and Red Rock. Oh, well, Regency is uh, regency-minds.com and Red Rock is rrr, that's three r's, plc.com. Great stuff. Andrew Bell, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, thanks very much for coming on the show and uh, do come on again maybe next year or the year after when the share prices of both Regency and Red Rock will no doubt be substantially higher. Thanks very much, Andrew. Thank you. Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight, with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, 
why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.